Um, handful of you have told me this morning that you're praying for the message this morning, and I appreciate that. There's always a little bit of nerves that come with standing up here and opening the Word of God. And if you've ever done that, you can relate to that. Um, but my hope is that, despite me, that what's presented from the Word of God today is something that um, you can get something out of. Um, we're going to be continuing in the passage that was preached last Sunday morning. Anybody remember where we preached out of last Sunday morning? Crickets, yeah. We're going to be over in John chapter 3. <clears throat> Very familiar passage to most people if you've had any exposure to religion. <clears throat> and actually, we're going to be focusing on verses 16 and 17, which should be very familiar to, to those that have, um, well, I, you, typically I would say very familiar to most people, but in today's world, I don't know how much um, exposure there is to even the familiar verses of God's Word. Um, but certainly if you spend any time in church, you are familiar with <clears throat> likely familiar with John chapter 3 and verse 16. We're picking up in this passage um, from kind of where we left off last week. Uh, last week we detailed the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And if you remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. We can speculate why he came by night, knowing that he was a Pharisee, knowing that he was a ruler of the Jews. Commonly, the expectation is that he um, might too close here. Or... Better. All right. It's a little unnerving hearing yourself on mic. Um, Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night, and a lot of times we speculate why he came by night and. Uh, the speculation is typically that due to his status, due to his um, name in the community, that he didn't want to be associated with Jesus. But whatever, whatever the reason why he came at night, I think we do have to give Nicodemus credit that he did come to Jesus. He did come seek him out. And last week, there was particular focus on this terminology where Jesus told Nicodemus, ye must be born again. And if you've had any exposure to religion, you've probably heard the terminology of being born again. Um, oftentimes you'll also hear this terminology being referred to as being saved. And here in today's passage, what we're going to find out is that God came into this world to provide salvation for all men. Let's, um, hopefully you're in there in John chapter 3. Let's read our two verses here. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, it tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's pray and then we'll try to unpack these two verses. <clears throat> Father God, we bow before you this morning. Father, we're thankful to be in your house. We're thankful to have this assembly of believers to assemble with this morning. We're thankful to have the Word of God in written format in our language that we can open up and read. And Father, we pray that as we explore these two verses this morning that you might help us to be attentive, 
that, Father, that you might help us to uh, be active participants in seeking to get something out of the Word of God this morning. And, Father, we pray that because it is the Word of God that it might cut to the needs of hearts here today. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus' name, amen. My hope this morning, as we try to unpack these two verses, is that the familiarity and the frequency of which perhaps you've heard these verses might not um, shade or blind us from the great truth that's packed into these two verses. And sometimes when we're very familiar with a portion of Scripture or something that, we're, that we've heard multiple times, sometimes we can get uh, lost in engaging in the deep truth that's there. The matter that these two verses talk about, the matter of salvation, is of vital importance to every individual here today. And for that matter, this topic of salvation is important to every individual throughout the entire world. You see, what we do with this topic of salvation will determine where we spend eternity. And for the man in lost condition, eternity is not something that we like to spend much time thinking about. And how do I know that? Because I too once was a lost man. And when the topic of eternity comes up, I tended to want to distract myself, tended to want to think about uh, what I was going to be doing later in the day or to think about what was going on, just being intentional about finding something else to put my focus on. Because if the Word of God's true, then where I would spend eternity was not a pleasant thing to ponder. But this topic of salvation that we're going to unpack today is important because it determines where you will spend eternity. And so I would challenge you to not get distracted, to not let your mind wander, but to dwell in the uncomfortableness of where eternity will be for you. Before we begin to unpack this, I want to define for you a word. It's a word here that Jesus uses in verse 17. In the second half of that verse, it says, But that the world through him might be saved. This word saved, let's consider this word for a moment. In religion, we tend to throw around this term saved. If you've sat and listened to any sermon, you've likely heard it. It's used in people's testimonies when they testify of their, their own salvation experience, if you want to call it that. Um, but I wonder sometimes if we really pause to think about and really define what this term saved means that Jesus uses here in verse 17. This word saved, it's, it's a Greek word. We're in the New Testament here. The, the New Testament is translated from the Greek. In the Greek, it means zozo, if I'm even pronouncing that right. But the literal meaning of it is to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger or destruction. To rescue from danger or destruction, to keep safe and sound. Some people define it as to save one from injury or peril. So speaking of someone that's in injury or somebody that's facing peril, to save them from that. It's used to talk about saving one from suffering, saving one from 
perishing. That is, in today's world, using it to refer to something like someone that's suffering from a disease that is made well, that is, that is healed, that is restored. It means to preserve one who is in danger of destruction, to rescue them. It means to deliver from the penalties of judgment. So you can picture someone that's facing judgment and to be delivered from that penalty of that judgment. If this is the word that is used in regards to man's soul, why, why then do we use this word saved when we're referring to man's soul? Well, man in his natural state a sinner. Romans 3.23 tells us that, very familiar verse, tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans defines sin as falling short of the glory of God. It's as if God, it's as if God's standard is a target out there, and I'm the archer shooting at the target, and constantly I fall short of reaching the target. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why? Well, because Isaiah tells us that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. That God's standard is perfection. James tells us that whosoever shall keep the whole law, that is able to keep all of God's law in effect in one point, that I'm guilty of all. You see, man needs saved because man in his natural state is a sinner. When we come into this world, we arrive under a death sentence. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. Wage, something we earn. We, most of us go to work for a wage. And what our employer owes us at the end of given hours is something that, it's a wage, something we deserve. Because we worked for it. And Romans tells us that the wages, what man works for, the wages of sin is death. And so the bottom line is that unless a person is saved, rescued from danger or destruction to keep safe and sound, unless a person is saved, then they will die in their sins and spend eternity in hell, forever separated from the presence of God. Well, no right-thinking person would want that to happen to them. Therefore, we must know how we can be saved. And that's something that we hope to explain as we unpack these two verses. If we were to title this message this morning, we would title it, Can God Really Save Your Soul? And that's the question here today. Can God really save your soul? Can God rescue you from destruction and keep you safe and sound? And of course, the resounding answer is yes, He can. And the Word of God in this text gives us that answer. As we look at these two verses there's multiple ways we could break this down, but we're going to break this down to three in, th in three areas. We're first going to look at God's promise to save. Then we're going to look at God has the power to save. And then we're going to look at God's provision or God's way to be saved. As we unpack this, let's first look at God's promise to save. There in verse 16, in the second half of the verse, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever 
believeth in him should not perish. Should not perish. Saved to be rescued from danger or destruction, to be rescued from perishing. And this verse tells us here that the person that believes in God should not. That, that terminology, should not, that's an absolute. It's an absolute denial, meaning it will not happen. To the person that believes, he should not perish, will not happen. In other words, when God saves us, when God rescues us from danger and destruction, God promises that whoever believes in Jesus Christ should not experience the judgment or the destruction that he deserves, but will be rescued and have everlasting life. God's promise to save here in verse 16 is a promise that is an old promise. In the beginning, when God made man in his image and man decided to sin against God, the Lord made a promise to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. Turn over there into Genesis, very first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God's, we're talking about God's promise to save and how God's promise to save is an old promise. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the context here is Adam and Eve have sinned. They have gone against God's commandment to them. And God is uh, addressing them, and he's also addressing the serpent, who is Satan. And in verse 15, as God talks, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. The thee talking about Satan, the woman talking about Eve, but particularly talking about the seed of the woman in which Christ would come to the earth in the form of virgin birth. And we just got done celebrating the Christmas holiday. And all the way back in Genesis, God is predicting or God is um, prophesying the virgin birth of Jesus Christ into this world. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. Speaking about how Satan would bruise the hill of the person of Jesus Christ. And that took place when Jesus Christ went to the cross. But speaking of how the person of Jesus Christ, through death on the cross, would, would provide a deadly blow to the head of Satan. And so we see here this promise for God to provide a way of salvation. It's an old promise. It was promised back in the beginning to mankind. But we also find that this promise is older than just the first man and woman. Revelation 3.13.8 tells us, speaking of Jesus, it says, The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If you think about Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the foundations of the world. Revelation tells us that even when the foundations of the world were laid, God had a plan. Not only from the foundation of the world was this plan, but even prior to that, 1 Peter 1.20, Peter tells us, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Before God even created the world, God had a plan to save mankind. These verses tell us that even before there was a sinner to be saved, before there was sin to be cleansed, the Lord, in his foreknowledge, had already formulated a plan to redeem sinners. His plan is older than mankind. His plan is older than sin. 
God's promise to save is an old promise. But when God, who cannot lie, makes a promise, it will never fail. For God so loved the world. It gives a whole new perspective to God's love. God's promise to save is an old promise. God's promise to save is also an ongoing promise. There in John 3 and verse 16, it tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall, should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's promise to save is an ongoing promise. It tells us here, should not perish, but have everlasting life. That have is present tense. That word have means to hold, to presently possess. That term everlasting means perpetual, it means ongoing. If you are saved here today, you can rejoice in the fact that this promise of everlasting life, it's not something in the future, that you have it right now, that it's present tense, that it's everlasting, that it's perpetual. While God's promise to save is older than the world, it still has the power of the Almighty behind it. And the promise is as valid today as it has ever been. John, in chapter 5, and verse 24, he put it this way. He said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, Jesus is speaking here. He says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. In this moment, hath everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. This promise to save is an ongoing promise. The promise has never and will never lose its great power. God is a saving God, and nothing will ever change that truth. God's promise to save not only is it an old promise, not only is it an ongoing promise, but God's promise to save is an open promise. The scripture there in verse 16 tells us that whosoever believeth in him, whosoever, God's promise to save is not limited to a select few, despite what the Calvinist doctrine may teach. But it's a promise that is offered to all men. And Scripture bears this out over and over again. Romans 10 and verse 13 tells us, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 3.22, addressing this promise of salvation to whosoever, says, Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That verse, those two verses there, Romans 3, 22 and 23, tell us that salvation is unto all. That God's gift of salvation is offered unto all. But it does delineate that while it's unto all, it's only upon all that believe. God's gift, God's promise of salvation is an open promise offered to all, but yet it's only upon those that choose to surrender their will and through faith, believe in Jesus Christ. First Timothy, talking about 
whosoever. 1 Timothy chapter 2 puts it this way. God's promise is an open promise whosoever to whosoever. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 puts it this way. It says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I hope you note the two times that the word all is used in those three verses. Who will have all men to be saved, who gave himself a ransom for all. God's promise to save is an open promise to anyone who will choose to believe. It's clear from these verses that anyone who responds to the drawing of God over their need of salvation can be saved by the grace of God. John put it this way in John 7 and 37. In the la- it says, In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The fact is that we are all sinners, that all mankind needs a Savior. Romans told us, for all have sinned. Galatians 3.22 puts it this way, it says, But Scripture has concluded all under sin. Therefore, we all need His salvation. The problem is, is willing to admit their guilt. Not everyone is willing to admit that they are who the Word of God explains that they are, and not everyone is willing to surrender their will. Yet, the Bible tells us that apart from God, we are in very sad shape. Isaiah 53.6 puts it this way. He's speaking of mankind. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Sheep with no shepherd, with no restraint, gone astray wherever they want. We have turned everyone to his own way. Mankind goes and does what he wants to do. And the Lord hath laid on him Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. In really simple terms, we all need what God has to offer in His plan of salvation. So we see here that God has a promise to save. That this promise is an old promise. But this promise is also an ongoing promise. And that it's an open promise to whosoever. Second, we see that God not only promises to save, but God has the power to save. He has the ability to back up His promise. There in John 3 and verse 17, tells us, God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That the world through him might be saved. God has promised to save, but he also has the power to back up his promise. How 
does God go about bringing men to himself? How does God go about bringing the sinner to him? Well, God has the, the power, the ability to call the sinner. You see, no one is saved when they feel like it. No one is just saved when they feel like it, which ought to cause you to think about this um, reasoning that sometimes go on, goes on in man's mind where he wants to defer to another day. The Bible says that sinners apart from God, the sinner apart from God is spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 Many of you can quote it, but Ephesians 2.1 says, And you hath he quickened, meaning to be made spiritually alive, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Mankind is spiritually dead. That is, mankind without being saved possesses no spiritual life and is unable to approach God on his own. Romans 3.11 puts it this way. says, There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. The lost man will only deal with God when God is seeking him. Scripture tells us that there is none in his own self, that seeketh after God. The only way a sinner can be saved is for God to be drawn, is for him to be drawn by God. We're here in John. Flip over a couple chapters to John chapter six. John chapter six and verse forty-four. Jesus is talking here, and he says, "No man can come to me." Except the Father which hath sent me, draw him. And then he goes on, and if you flip, if you look down to verse 65, he repeats it. And he says, and he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. The only way the sinner can be saved is when God is drawing him. Salvation always originates with God in heaven. It never begins with man. There is none that seeketh after God. However, God, in His mercy, gives man every opportunity. John, 13, John 12, 32 puts it this way. It says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, speaking about referencing his death on the cross, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. There in John 6.44, it said, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And later on, in John 12.32, Jesus says, If I be lifted up, if I die on the cross, I will draw all men unto me. John 1.9 puts it this way. It says, That was the true light. Speaking of Jesus Christ, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now the, the application here is that mankind should never presume upon God. When God is calling, when God is drawing, it is the time for you to come to Him. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. He says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see, God is not obligated to call again. Therefore, don't bank on time. Don't bank I'm putting it off. Proverbs 27.1 warns of it 
in this way, warns of this mindset in this way. It says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. It reminds me of Felix as Paul reasoned with Felix on the topic of salvation. And Felix said, go thy way. On some more convenient day, I will call for thee. And of course, Scripture never gives us the story that Felix ever found a more convenient day. James warns us this way. James 4.14, he says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. The only way a sinner can be saved is to be drawn by God. And it's very dangerous to run from the repeated calls of God. Proverbs 29.1 warns and says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck, so suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. The danger in deferring my decision of salvation is that my heart can become hardened. And at some point, God can quit calling. In Genesis, as God spoke about the judgment of man, and I believe this was before the flood, as he as leading up to the flood, God put it this way. He said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. You will only be saved when the Spirit of God is drawing you. God has the power to save. He has the power to call the sinner. He has the power to convert the sinner. When a sinner places his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, God does a work of grace so powerful in their life that it really can't be explained on human terms. This is the new birth that Jesus tells Nicodemus about when he was earlier in this chapter, when he was talking about the need to be born again. This is what Jesus was referring to to Nicodemus. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul put it this way. He said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Puts it this way, Ephesians says, And you hath he quickened, you hath he made alive, dead, in trespasses and sins. God has the power to save. He has the power to convert the sinner. And when a sinner is converted, all sin is immediately and completely forgiven. The psalmist put it this way, he said, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Most of you know that analogy, but you get in your airplane and you start flying west. You're never going to be going east. You switch around and you go east, you're never going to be going west. That is what God does with your sin the point of salvation. John, John the Baptist put it this way in John chapter 1. He said, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. God has the power to convert the sinner. When the sinner is converted, all sin is immediately and completely forgiven. The sinner becomes a child of God. Think about this glorious thought. 
In 1 John 3, 1 and 2, John puts it this way. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Behold, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. God has the power to convert the sinner, and when that happens, the sinner becomes a child of God. God has the power to convert the sinner, and when that happens, the sinner in that moment is delivered from his sin. He's delivered from the power of sin. Romans 6.14 tells us, For sin shall not have dominion over you. He's delivered from the penalty of sin. John 5.24 tells us, speaking about he that believeth, he says, And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The sinner is delivered from sin at that moment of salvation, from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and eventually from the presence of sin. As Revelation tells us, and there shall and there shall in wise enter into any and there shall in no wise enter in anything, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You ever want to be free from the presence of sin? Well, the sinner when he is saved, is delivered from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and one day from the very presence of sin. God has the power to convert the sinner, and when that happens, the sinner becomes a joint heir with Christ. Romans 8.17 puts it this way and says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, that we may also be glorified together. God has the power to save. He has the power to call the sinner. He has the power to convert the sinner. He has the power to give the sinner an inheritance in a heavenly home. You're here in John. Flip over to John chapter 14. This is talked about in John 14. When God converts the sinner, the sinner inherits the heavenly home. John 14 and verse 1 says, Jesus speaking to his disciples here and he tells them, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The sinner, when God converts him, inherits a heavenly home. And we could go on and on. There's many more references of the blessings that could be named when God converts the sinner. But these that we've read are, are sufficient to prove that when God saves a sinner, He has the power to change them forever. God Promises to save should not perish. God has the power to save that the world through Him might be saved. And thirdly, we see that God, we see God's provision to save. There in 
John 3 and verse 16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God's provision to save. God, in His provision to save, God provided man a substitute. When man sinned in the garden, man fell under the curse of God. For man to be redeemed, a man had to die. However, not just any man would do. The one who died would have to be a perfect man. A man without sin and without any wickedness. God, knowing our need and our inability to do anything about it ourselves, God provided a perfect substitute. He gave us none other than His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the gift of God in Christ proves God's love for you and me. For God so loved the world. Now remember, this was a plan in God's foreknowledge, knowing the man would sin before there was even any sin to save man from. Romans, go over to Romans chapter 5. Romans gives us a good analogy of God providing himself a substitute. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 tells us, For when we were yet without strength, mankind does not have the strength, does not have the ability to save himself. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, according to God's timing, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he goes on and he puts this in perspective. And he says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Think about who you would give your life for. It's probably a pretty short list. And he says, For scarcely on rare, on rare occasions, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. That for a righteous man, for somebody that we would describe as righteous, there might be a handful of people that would die for that person. Yet pre-adventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. So not a righteous person, but just, just a good man, just somebody that society would call good, that there, there may be, it's probably less people than the righteous man, but there may be some people that would, that would die for a good man. And then he puts it in perspective in verse 8. And he says, but God commendeth, God showed, God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet righteous, Christ died for us. And that while we were good, Christ died for us. No. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, in his provision to save, provided a precious substitute. The application to this, and understand this, is that when Jesus died on the cross, he was literally taking your place. Well, Brother Caleb, my sins aren't that bad. Whosoever keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. When Christ died on the cross, he was literally taking your place. He was dying for you. Isaiah 53, we referenced it earlier, 
But Isaiah 53 puts it this way. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, his son, Jesus Christ, the iniquity, the sins of us all. Matthew 20, 28 puts it this way. It says, Even as the Son of Man, referring to Jesus Christ, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom to many. Hebrews puts it this way, says, But we see Jesus. Who is Jesus? The man in Genesis 1.1 that tells us, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John tells us in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, speaking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The very one there in the beginning that spoke the world into existence. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, that which he created, for the suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Look over with me in, in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2 speaks on this. Subject of God being the substitute, literally taking your place. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. For if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God, in his provision to save, provided Jesus Christ as a substitute. When Jesus was on the cross, God transferred the debt of your sins onto him. And he died to pay your price that you could never pay. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, For he hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In God's provision to save, he provided a precious substitute. In God's provision to save, this precious substitute was a perfect sacrifice. When Jesus was on the cross, his death and sacrifice were sufficient to provide the saving needs of the entire world. He gave himself once for all that we might be able to be free from the grip of sin. On this topic of him being the perfect sacrifice, look over in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 compares Christ's sacrifice to some of the Old Testament sacrifices that could not take away sin. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24 tells us, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, speaking and referring to the temple, to the Jewish temple, that Christ didn't enter into the holy place there in the temple, which was made with hands, into the physical temple, which was on earth, which are a figure of the true. The temple was just a figure, anyways, of that which represented the true going on in heaven. So Christ didn't enter into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, that Christ 
entered into the presence of God. And verse 25 tells us, nor yet, that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. So Christ didn't have to die multiple times as the Jewish tradition was for the high priest to annually offer a lamb for the sins of the people of Israel. But God's offering just needed to be once. Verse 26 goes on and kind of expounds on that and says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The blood of bulls and goats could only cover mankind's sin temporarily. But when Jesus came and he died on the cross, and he took his blood before the Father. It was the Lamb that taketh away the sins of the world. Verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin, unto salvation. God's sacrifice provided a perfect sacrifice. Without Jesus Christ's precious blood, there is no salvation possible for man. He was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus told Nicodemus that his religion could not save him that he needed to be born again. And neither can any religious ritual or practice or tradition save us. Nothing saves but the faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 puts it this way. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, not of anything that you can do, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God provided the perfect sacrifice, and nothing aside from Him will meet God's standard. God's, in God's provision to save, God also provided not only a precious substitute, not only a perfect sacrifice, but he provided a plan of salvation. And this really is where we come to the crucial question that we kind of started with. If God promises to save men, if he has the power to save him, and if God provides the means to save him, how does one go about being saved? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. And the answer is found in these two verses we read today. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms exactly what a person must do to be saved from their sins? The answer is to believe on Him. Romans expounds on this a little bit, and it's not complicated. In Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, speaking on the same topic, it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that term confess there really means to say the same thing about, to say the same thing about yourself as God says. To see yourself the way God describes you. 
to, it means, that word confess there means to be in agreement with God's view. To essentially be in agreement with what Scripture says about you. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. How does one... How is one saved? Well, one is saved when he sees himself the way God sees him in his pitiful, lost, and perishing condition. And when by faith he turns from that way and believes in Jesus Christ. Verse 13 tells us, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord saved. These verses tell us that to be saved we must acknowledge the claims of Christ. These verses tell us that faith cannot be in works. Faith cannot be in religion. Faith cannot be in self-effort or self-righteousness that I'm good enough. But in Jesus and Him alone for our soul's salvation. The best thing we can do is simply take God at His word and accept salvation as what it is, the gift of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the question is, can God really save your soul? Can God really rescue you from destruction and keep you safe and sound? Well, the answer is a resounding, yes, He can. And the Word of God gives us these three reasons today that God promises to save, that God has the power to save, that God has provided the provision to save, the means is there. The question is, what will you do with God's gift? Maybe you're here today and you know that you're not saved. And you, hear, you feel what we would call the convicting spirit of God tapping on your soul. You will only be saved when God is drawing you. God is calling. And you know what you need to do. You may be asking, playing in your mind, can God really save my soul? God knows your heart. And I would ask simply, that you would do business with God. If you're a saved man here today, uh, rejoice in God's love. That before the foundations of the world, before there was even sin to save a sinner, that God had a plan for the foundation of the world to save your soul. Let's pray. Father God, we bow before you here at the close of this message. We thank you for the clarity of the Word of God, for the simplicity of the Word of God. We thank you for the plan of salvation. We thank you that before the foundations of the world were ever laid, you, knowing that man would sin, provided a plan where man could still be made right with you. And when we contemplate that thought, 
It brings a whole new depth of understanding to how God so loved the world. Father, we want to rejoice this morning in your simple plan of salvation. And God, we pray this morning that if there's souls here who you are drawing, Father, we pray that they would not put it off. We pray that they would not resist your calling. But Father, we pray that they would do business with you. And we ask these things in your name, Jesus' name. Amen.